0: This in the end will be a battle between democracy and dictatorship. And we must hope that just as in Iran, the ordinary Iranian people have challenged the autocracy of Iran. We must hope that in China, that the people themselves as well, will change things in China for the better. I don't hate China. I love China. I love Chinese people but I don't love the Chinese Communist Party. I don't love the things that they have done to their own people, and I want for them what I enjoy for myself, and that is freedom, democracy, and the rule of law, and human rights.
1: Today on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Lord Alton of Liverpool, who has sat as a crossbench member of the House of Lords for the last 25 years. Lord Alton is known for his charity work and dedication to human rights, as well as his support for freedom in Hong Kong and China. Lord Alton was the subject of sanctions by the Chinese Communist Party in 2021. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Lord Alton, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Pleasure. You're a member of the House of Lords, but you weren't born with the title. You actually brought up in a, a council flat and, and you started out as a teacher and then became Britain's youngest city councillor. Could you give us a brief history of your career and how you got to where you are today?
0: Well, I am, as you say, the typical kid off the council estate. I was lucky enough to pass an exam and get a scholarship into a grammar school. But it was really what was happening at the time that was influencing me as a teenager, I think, more than anything else. And I came from a mixed marriage. My father was a British. British and was in the British army. He'd been a desert rat in North Africa in the battle there at El Alamein, but also then in the Italian campaigns at Monte Cassino and so on. So he'd seen some terrible things. His brother was in the RAF had been killed. There were three other brothers, so five had enlisted to fight Nazism. And they came from the east end of London. They were Cockneys. And my dad met my mother at the end of the war. She was an Irish speaker from the west of Ireland. um, Very different kind of background, but They married and we were rehoused from a uh, a sort of, well, we lived in in two rooms with uh, no inside sanitation, an outside loo and, and a tin bath and we were rehoused to a council estate on the outskirts of London. So my upbringing, as you say, was pretty rough and ready but there was a lot of love there as well and a lot of personal support. But it was also a household in which we talked about serious things. So by my mid-teens I started to get interested in what was happening in the world and it was a time when there was a war underway in Vietnam. There were Soviet tanks had come into uh, the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia as it was then, Prague, and taking away the the liberties and freedoms that people had been aspiring to. It was 1968 when Martin Luther King, Dr. King and Robert Kennedy were both assassinated. Uh, So these were big events and then of course we were priming up to send troops into Northern Ireland. So all of these issues had some relevance to me as a sixth former at school and I ended up thinking, well, I'd like to join a political party. Uh, I didn't join one because I wanted to get ahead in politics or at least if I had made that decision, I wouldn't have chosen a party if it only had six members of the House of Commons and was running at about three or 4% in the opinion polls. But its leader, Joe Grimmond, Liberal Member of Parliament for the Orkney and Shetland Islands, uh, he was a great man and I loved many of the things that he was saying about the shape and uh, the future shape that Britain should take. So I joined the, his, the Young Liberals. And uh, when I went to Liverpool as a student, I kept my connections and ended up living in a neighbourhood where half the homes had no inside sanitation or running hot water, reminding me of my own youth. And for that reason, I stood for the City Council because I said that people had been taken for granted and that something should be done about it. And uh, remarkably, the good people of the Low Hill Ward in Liverpool elected me as as their city councillor. And so my political life began from that, really.
1: So uh, when you were campaigning to be an MP, your slogan was, everybody knows someone who's been helped by David Alton. And it it seems you've you've continued that um, approach to life uh, now. Can you tell us a bit about your, your charity work, the different groups you're involved in?
0: Well, being elected at 21 to the City Council in Liverpool meant I was pretty wet behind the ears, but I was very fortunate there were people around me who were great encouragers, and uh, they they supported me through those early years. And we, it was a constituency in which there had not been any Liberal presence, and indeed the constituency had been held by the Labour Party since the First World War. So I gradually started to build up my political base but also to campaign about the things I cared about and we took control of the city council and I became its housing chairman so I was able to do something about the conditions people were in and that slogan that everyone knew someone who'd been helped by by me the person who invented that slogan clearly realized that you couldn't say that if it wasn't true because if you did know someone who hadn't been helped or you had never heard of anybody who'd ever been helped, then why would you believe a word that they say? And I, it did arrest people. It made people think about what we were saying, which is that you are entitled to have politicians who are close to you, who share the issues that you encounter, that will do something about them and build things up for you and for your lives. So I was then elected by those same people Uh, to Parliament. I became the shortest lived ever MP because I was elected on the day after the Thatcher government, the Thatcher uh, opposition as it was, defeated the Labour government in 1979. A general election was called on the Wednesday night and I was elected on the Thursday so I had to make my maiden speech within two hours of arriving and contest another election, the general election, four weeks later. Happily I was sent back to the House of Commons and I spent 18 years Uh, in the Commons until I decided to stand down. Now during that period I realised that I could do as much by setting up organisations, charities, NGOs as I could do through formal politics. So with a friend we established the Jubilee campaign in Parliament and the Jubilee campaign was specifically around Groups of people who had been forgotten in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but by amnesty and some of the big uh, NGOs, particularly those being persecuted because of their religious beliefs. So ultimately, I stood down from the House of Commons and was appointed to the House of Lords. And that also gave me a different kind of platform to pursue the causes that I care about, but also uh, to do something on a practical level. So I helped set up a charity that works with women children who have been trafficked, uh, people who were victims of modern-day slavery. So as well as pushing to see legislation passed, it was passed. Theresa May was uh, the progenitor, the the person responsible for that legislation. It was, I think, her lasting legacy while she was Home Secretary. Uh, But at a practical level, setting up small charities that can actually help victims as well seemed to me to be important, not just to talk about things, but to do things as well.
1: And so you also have some international interests as well as the UK charities?
0: One of the things about going to the House of Lords was that, of course, I no longer represented constituents. And it did mean I had more space and time to pursue some of the things that I personally care a great deal about. So on the back of the uh, creation of a Jubilee campaign, which campaigned for victims of religious persecution in the former Soviet Union, we extended its remit to cover the Middle East and the Far East. I'd already been out to Hong Kong, I'd been to Shanghai. I'd seen for myself some of the things that were still continuing and continue to this day uh, in the Far East, especially in China. And I felt that we should extend the work. The principles that underpinned what Jubilee was doing. And so new organisations, new ideas uh, came out of that, new alliances, new groups of people. And in 2019, for instance, I was invited to go to Hong Kong To monitor what now have turned out to be the last fair and free elections. They were the district council elections. Millions of people poured out in order to support democracy and the rule of law. Uh, And of course, that angered Beijing enormously. As a consequence of of that, by the way, I was then sanctioned by the Chinese Communist Party along with six other uh, members of the British Parliament two in the House of Lords, five in the House of Commons. And also because I become the vice chairman of the all-party parliamentary group on Hong Kong, the vice chairman of the all-party group uh, on the Uyghurs. I'd taken up issues around Taiwan, issues around Tibet. So these were all things that were connected because they were about freedom, liberty, uh, the rule of law, democracy. Um, And they were things about which I knew that I could do something in parliament. And I was appointed in the House of Lords to the International Relations and Defence Select Committee, where I currently serve. And one of the reports that we have done during my time as a member is looking at China, trade and security. And it was during that inquiry that I was able to point to the lack of resilience in the UK and the increasing dependency, which has left us now with a £40,000,000,000 40, trade deficit with the People's Republic of China. Mm. And I gave an example, for instance, of how we bought one billion, one billion lateral flow tests from China. How we currently still have 22 million items in China of PPE that we pay China, the Chinese Communist Party, £750,000 a day, £750,000 each and every day to store 22 million items of PPE in China. This is crazy. The dependency it's created surely if we've learned nothing from what has happened in Ukraine it should be that dependency on Russia in the case of Germany for instance has thwarted their ability to be resistant to them because of their dependency on things like Russian oil and gas so we must not ourselves in the United Kingdom become dependent on a country like the People's Republic of China so you pursue your small issues and you learn about the bigger picture and then you see if you can influence government policy uh, in this regard. So I've been able to influence government policy on things like dependency on Huawei, uh, on the use of Chinese surveillance cameras, many of them made in Xinjiang by Uyghur slave labour. I've been able to move amendments on genocide uh, successfully through the House of Lords, partially successfully through the House of Commons, in order to try and say that through the prism of looking at small questions, you can do something about the big ones as well.
1: You mentioned the sanctioning there, and uh, uh, Sir Ian Duncan-Smith referred to it as a badge of honour. Uh, the Prime Minister also talked about it. It seems almost that the Chinese Communist Party, they shoot themselves in the foot with these kind of moves.
0: Well, I think so, because if, if they knew me, or for that matter, Baroness Kennedy, Helena Kennedy QC, or, or Sir Duncan-Smith, for that matter, Tom Tugendhat and Tim Lawton, and Ms Ghani, others who have been sanctioned by the Chinese Communist Party, they would realize that it is not just counterproductive, it has the opposite effect, but it's made us all even more determined to shine a light on the situation inside the boundaries, the borders of the PRC, and on the people who suffer at their hands, whether it's the one million, estimated one million, Uyghur Muslims who are incarcerated in camps in Xinjiang, whether it's the people in Hong Kong some of whom I know personally, who have either been arrested or imprisoned around a thousand pro-democracy demonstrators, protesters, for instance, now languishing inside the Hong Kong jails at the behest of the Chinese Communist Party, or for that matter, the exiles, people like Nathan Law, who was the youngest member of the LegCo in Hong Kong, now in exile in the United Kingdom, along with 140,000 other Hong Kongers. So yes, of course, We're going to speak out about these things. They're not going to silence us, uh, not by trying to impose sanctions. I was asked, how did I feel about my children as well being sanctioned in these same list of sanctions? They too have put up a WhatsApp group entitled Badge of Honour. It has the opposite effect. You can't push people around in this way and expect them to do nothing about it. And through IPAC, the International Alliance of Parliamentarians, that has been formed. They've even created an international alliance of people who had never even spoken to one another before, left, right and centre, but all of whom agree that the greatest threat facing the democratic world at the moment is the People's Republic of China. And along with the PRC, some of the other autocracies with whom they are connected, the Taliban in Afghanistan, Iran and Russia.
1: We had uh, Rahima Mama from the World Uyghur Congress on the show recently. And she mentioned your work on the Genocide Determination Bill. Could you tell us a bit about what this bill hopes to achieve and the the progress? Well, if any of your
0: viewers are interested in the genocide issues, I hope they would be. Uh, I published a book on this subject with my colleague, Dr Evelina Ohab, just a few weeks ago. But you're right, I've also reintroduced my private members bill on this, and I introduced amendments to virtually every piece of legislation that has been going through the Houses of Parliament on saying why we should not do business as usual with a state that has been credibly accused of genocide it was liz truss when she was our foreign secretary who said this is a genocide it was Uh, Secretary of State Blinken in the United States who said this is a genocide and many other European countries as well but through their parliaments and the legislatures have said this is a genocide. What does that mean? It means that under the 1948 convention on the crime of genocide which we are a signatory to you have got to have been found to have committed genocide which is a very technical term. And usually that relates to something like the elimination of a group of people because of their religion or their ethnicity or some other distinctive characteristic. So Geoffrey Nice, uh, QC, now KC. So Geoffrey Nice is a very, very distinguished international human rights lawyer who was involved in the prosecution of Milosevic after Bosnia. Jeffrey Nice's tribunal, an independent tribunal, examined all the evidence here in London. They took witnesses from around the world, including uh, Rahima Mahmood, and they decided that a genocide is underway. The United Nations sent their own uh, uh, special envoy, uh, Michelle uh, Rachelet. She was ultimately allowed to go to Xinjiang, and much to the anger of the Chinese Communist Party, of course, she has found that there are crimes against humanity being committed against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. And then China, inside the, um, the Human Rights Council of the United Nations, of which paradoxically they are a member, rather like putting the fox in charge of the hen house, the Chinese, of course, even said there will not be no debate, no debate about this report, and they blocked the debate and a number of other countries like Eritrea and other well-known champions of human rights supported China in preventing that debate from taking place. So all the more important that we keep up the pressure because we have a duty under the 1948 convention. The duty is firstly to prevent genocide taking place. The second duty is to protect those affected. And the third duty is to punish those who have been responsible. And actually since 2007 in Bosnia, There's a further duty, and that is to predict when we see the signs of genocide emerging. Now, we don't do any of those things at the moment, which is why I keep coming back to this and saying we have to create a legal mechanism that enables a court to be able to decide when a genocide is underway or not. Technically, is it happening? And at the moment, the British government, the Foreign Office, simply says "Ah, only a court can determine that, knowing that there is no court empowered to do it. Um, The International Criminal Court can't do it because China would always block it through the Security Council using their veto. So the bill that I introduced, And the measures I've tried to introduce would enable the High Court of England and Wales to determine when a genocide is underway. And it won't just affect what's happening in Xinjiang. It it affects many other parts of the world, too. I mean, you think about what's happened to the Rohingya Muslims. You think about the Christians in northern Nigeria. uh, The the numbers are going, stretching all the way back to the Armenian genocide. Uh, You can see that we have failed in our duty. And it's a solemn international duty written law we have failed in the duty to uphold the genocide convention and to protect and to prevent and to punish and we've got to do better in the future
1: when uh, rishi sunak was, was campaigning for his leadership bid he seemed to take quite a hard stance on china um but recently it seems maybe he's softening a little um do you have any thoughts on that
0: when Rishi Sunak was campaigning to become the leader of the Conservative Party, he said that for too long, his words, we've been putting out the red carpet to the Chinese Communist Party and we had failed to recognise uh, the threat that they posed to the UK. Threat is the word that Liz Truss then, as Foreign Secretary, said should replace systemic competitor, which is how we did described China in our integrated review and other documents that the British government had published. So that then became the position of the UK that we regard China, as the United States does, as Australia does, as Canada does and many other countries, as a threat to the United Kingdom. Rishi Sunak during the um, recent G20 meeting softened his language and said, oh, they're simply a challenge. Well, they're more than a challenge. And I hope that this doesn't mean that he's backpedalling in any way, trying to revert to being a sort of Davos man, going back to the Cameron Osborne Golden Age era, where we failed to see the dangers that were lurking. But anyone who'd studied the human rights record of the Chinese Communist Party would know that the things that they had done over their 100 years, I mean, some scholars say as many as 50 million people lost their lives. You know, this is no... Organization, political body, set of leaders has been responsible for more deaths, even Stalin, even Hitler, than those things. The depredations committed by the CCP. So we've got to be wise about this. And yes, many of us hoped that when Dan Xiaoping was the leader of the People's Republic of China, that the agreement that he made with Margaret Thatcher, that this was an act of genius. The two systems, one country. Uh, idea that they promoted for the governance of Hong Kong. Many of us thought this, if it's made to work, could be a way of resolving the issues around Taiwan in the future. Taiwan has never, ever been a part of the PRC. It has never been governed by the Chinese Communist Party. So when I hear people talking about its reabsorption into the Chinese uh, Republic, then this is absurd. It's never been part. And yet Xi Jinping regularly says it's their intention, if necessary by force, to invade uh, Taiwan and to take away the freedoms and liberties that the 23 million people of Taiwan enjoy. So we've got to see that clear with our eyes wide open. We've got to see that they have destroyed two systems, one country in Hong Kong, and recognize that there are real implications here for the West as well. And when they try to blackmail countries like Lithuania, for instance, for allowing a Taiwanese representative to have his own office and status inside Lithuania, this is interference in another country's affairs. When they use the Belt and Road initiatives in order to get people to support them in places like the Human Rights Council, because those countries have now become indebted to them. Again, we've got to have our eyes wide open and do what we can to prevent those things. This, in the end, will be a battle between democracy and dictatorship. And we must hope that just as in Iran, the ordinary Iranian people have challenged the autocracy of Iran. We must hope that in China, that the people themselves as well will change things in China for the better. I don't hate China. I love China. I love Chinese people. But I don't love the Chinese Communist Party. I don't love the things that they have done to their own people. And I want for them what I enjoy for myself, and that is freedom, democracy and the rule of law and human
1: rights. Staying with Asia, you're the co-chair of the uh, All-Party Parliamentary Group on North Korea, and and you visited North Korea yourself in in 2010. Uh, What was it like to be in this most isolated of countries, and can we expect any meaningful relations between the UK and North Korea?
0: Well, if anyone wants to know what my feelings and thoughts about North Korea are, I have been there, as you say, on several occasions, four occasions, and I've written a a little book about that, um, which poses the question, what hope is there for North Korea? This goes back to nearly 15 years ago when a colleague of mine was out of London and she'd been expecting to see a North Korean escapee who was coming to London and her office rang me and said, could I see him instead? And I said, well, I don't really know very much about North Korea. And the young man said, well, no one knows much about North Korea, so it's an opportunity. And I laughed and I said, okay. And I'm so glad that I met that man. He he had two of his children and his wife had died in the famine in North Korea. He tried to get out of the country with his remaining son who died en route. He'd been going in and out, helping other people to escape from North Korea. There are of course, 30,000 North Koreans now living in South Korea. There are nearly 1,000 who have been living in the United Kingdom as well, one of the biggest diasporas in the world. So it is no longer impossible to learn about North Korea because these are people who have suffered inside the concentration camps and labour camps. These are people who have seen it firsthand. And this is a country that is willing to spend $70 million on one day on a series of ballistic nuclear missile tests when it can't even feed its own people, and when children are malnourished and suffering from stunted growth and where where there is acute poverty. Kim Jong-un has a great deal to answer for in threatening and blackmailing the world with nuclear weapons while failing his own people. You only have to look at the contrast on the other side of the border between North and South Korea to see What could happen in North Korea if it emulated South Korea and introduced democracy and an open society, liberal values, the rule of law, a dynamic economy, the prosperity that there is. I mean, this is chalk and cheese. And I only hope that the time will come when we will see significant change in North Korea. Of course, they have imposed an information blockade. Uh, I was able to convince the BBC World Service that it should extend its services to the Korean Peninsula, and I'm glad that they have done. I hope some of it percolates through into North Korea. People have a right under Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights to information and knowledge. So broadcasters like yourselves have got a great responsibility to get the message out and to let people know that it doesn't have to be like this. After all, when I was a young member of the House of Commons, I was told we'd never see the end of the Berlin Wall. We would never see change. I was told we'd never see change in South Africa where I'd campaigned against apartheid, that we would never see change between the communities in Northern Ireland where 3,500 people had died, 30,000 people injured during the Troubles, and yet prove a genius of the Good Friday Agreement. We saw change. So change can come about, but it takes people to do that. And, of course, I believe it should be done non-violently, it should be done peacefully, it should be done by determination, by argument, by showing people the truth showing them what it could be like, and they've got to be encouraged to help bring about those changes. And we see that with, I know, a young North Korean activist who escaped not once but twice from North Korea, taken back, tortured, beaten for having dared to try and escape, and who now is learning all the skills of elected politics. I hope that people like him will one day be able to bring those skills back to North Korea.
1: Bringing things closer to home. Uh, The House of Lords seems to get looked down upon uh, somewhat in recent times, and I know uh, Sir Keir Starmer was talking about abolishing it to restore trust in politics. Um, I think people like you are a great example of why the House of Lords is important. Could you explain to us how the House of Lords fits into the workings of our democratic society and why it's important to the average person on the street.
0: It is slightly odd to hear people saying that the abolition of the House of Lords would restore trust in politics. You could advance the same argument for the House of Commons if you wanted to. Look, both houses are an important part of our democracy. Uh, I've served in both houses. The House of Commons is the elected house. It gets the final say on everything. We scrutinise, we amend, we change, we challenge, and that's how it should be. And yes, there are some people, I wonder why they're there. Two kinds of people in politics, some who want to be things, some who want to do things, and we've got to encourage the people who want to do things to go into political life. And if eventually some of them serve because of their experience, not just in politics, but in the wider world, in business, in the health service, in universities, in schools, All sorts of walks of life, scientists, come into the House of Lords. They contribute that experience uh, to the debates in the Lords, but they don't get the last word. The last word goes with the elected representatives. That is how it should be. So I believe in a bicameral legislature. I think there's a lot to be said for having people who are not elected contributing to the debate, but I would reform it. There are reforms that could be made. That in itself won't bring politics closer to the people. Politicians will do that. And if they spend all their time pressing little buttons on iPads or computers and disconnect with where people are, then they shouldn't then be surprised when people, whether they're in Rust Belt states in America or Rust Belt counties and towns, in particularly the north of England, kick over the traces and kick back at the elites have disengaged with them. So my appeal to politicians would be spend less time in the Westminster bubble and spend more time on the ground in the communities you represent. Get close to the people and embrace causes. Don't just go there to to be like a robot that constantly repeats the mantras of your political party. What was it W.S. Gilbert said in the 19th century? They always vote at their party's call and never ever think for themselves at all. Well, if it was true in the 19th century, it's certainly true in the 21st as well. We need a different kind of person going into politics. Ultimately, politics is only as good as the people in it and the people who put them there. It's one of the joys of living in a democracy. People should never, ever treat that privilege lightly. People gave their lives the freedoms, the privileges that we enjoy today and even though sometimes it doesn't function as we would hope it would do, um, (laughs) what does? Nothing is perfect and what would you prefer? A dictatorship? Well if you you enjoy the privilege of living in a democracy then you have a duty to contribute to it.
1: You are known for your uh, outspoken views on abortion uh, in America in recent times. There's been quite a lot of public discussion on this uh, issue but in the UK it never seems to get too much uh, attention. What are your thoughts on abortion what changes would you like to see in in Britain? Well in 1967
0: as a child at school uh, I said I couldn't understand why Parliament was allowing the taking of life of an unborn child. So my views have in a sense not changed but of course I have thought about it more deeply as the years have gone by. Since 1967, 10 million million British babies have been aborted. 98% under the so-called Social Clause. So it has nothing to do with the hard cases that people will often raise. I passionately believe in human rights, but there are 30 articles in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the most important of which is the right to life. You can't have any of the other rights unless you have the right to be born. And when I see, for instance, the one-child policy in China, particularly discriminate against little girls, where women were forcibly aborted so that you could only then have one child. Usually it was a boy. And what did that lead to? 30 million more males than females in China. So this is anti-woman, this is anti-feminism, this is anti-girl. And I think we've got to be straightforward about this. We shouldn't be against things, we should be for things. I'm positively pro-life for the woman and her child. And we've got to do more, for instance, to help women who sometimes or abandoned by or forced by reckless and irresponsible men into having abortions. This isn't good for for anybody, but it's the sheer scale of it as well. And the law even allows abortion up to an even during birth in the United Kingdom, where a child has a disability. So 90% of all babies with Down syndrome are now routinely aborted. Uh, And I think, you know, what's the point of campaigning for ramps on public buildings for wheelchairs if you say that someone should never have been born in the first place? I think we have to address some of the inconsistencies and the illogicality in the positions that we take. But would I want to see the debate in the United Kingdom become like the debate in America? No, I wouldn't. I hope that we will be sensitive and gentle in listening to one another's points of view. And I would hope that we would become less illiberal in Britain because when I see the no-platforming of people, the cancelling of people, merely because they hold pro-life views, that deeply disturbs me. This is a deeply profoundly held view based on belief of various kinds. I think that every person is unique. Uh, I think life begins at conception. Nobody has ever shown me a point other than conception when life begins. That's the moment I begin to be me and from that moment I therefore think you have the right to protection, that human dignity as well as the right to life should insist upon that. I just want the chance and the right to be able to express that view freely without being no-platformed uh, or being branded a controversial speaker and therefore denied a platform to speak about any of the other things I care about either. So I think that we need, to, we hope shouldn't go in the direction that the United States has gone in, but I think it's the reason I left party politics when it was decided this had to be a party policy. Well, why? It had always been a matter of conscience and people should not be prevented from joining political parties because a party says that you've got to believe in the right to someone to take the life of an unborn child.
1: Uh, You are a Roman Catholic. Can you tell us about the the role faith plays in your life and your work?
0: Well, I got my Catholicism from my mother's breast milk. My mother was an Irish Catholic, but my my father was not. Uh, He was an Anglican who had deeply troubled views about God because he wondered why God, as he put it, would allow some of the awful things he had seen during the Second World War to happen. But he continued to have a belief but he certainly had big questions and I do too. Uh, I'm married to an Anglican whose father was 60 years an Anglican priest, a real saint of a man, and his father was 50 years an Anglican priest. So there's a lo- lot of faith around in our family and my my children have faith and I'm I'm glad about that. But we question, we challenge, we think hard. Uh, I couldn't, my, one of my sons it, it has a doctorate in astrophysics, and he says, I couldn't believe in everything that I see if there isn't a creator. Um, simple as that, you know. So I think once you start from the premise that there is a creator, that we are accountable and answerable in some way, then we find. How best to express that in whatever tradition that we're brought up in or we choose to be part of and we should be free to do that i mean one of the things that so angers me is that and we're meeting the day before a day that's called red wednesday red for blood it's the day on which we commemorate those who die for their freedom of religion or belief um, 350 million christians for instance worldwide are persecuted for their belief but Rohingya Muslims, Uyghur Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, Falun Gong. You can the list goes on. Um, the Baha'is in Iran. Many, many people, the Jews, of course, perhaps more than any other group of people you think of the Holocaust, people have died because of the expression of their faith, which has been unacceptable to others because of either an extreme view of faith on their part or an extreme view of atheism on the part of Hitler, Stalin and the rest. So we, we have to defend these rights, the right to believe. These should be deeply personal things uh, that people can come to embrace or reject. Article 18 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights says that everyone has the right to believe or not to believe or to change their belief. Which is why, for instance, I campaigned for a young man called Alexander Rahn, who had been imprisoned in Din- Indonesia. Because he put on his Facebook site, he didn't believe in God. Well, he had the same right not to believe as I should have to believe. As for individual denominations, I find myself at loggerheads with the Catholic hierarchy in, in Rome because of their decision to make a concordat with Xi Jinping in Beijing. I know Cardinal Zen, uh, who has been a 90-year-old man put on trial in Hong Kong because He was a trustee of a charity that supported and helped some of those who'd been affected by the protests in Hong Kong. This is outrageous. And to see him disowned by the Vatican while they want to try and improve their relationship with the Chinese Communist Party, uh, I think it's outrageous, which is why I'm not uncritical, and I wouldn't want, therefore, anyone to have the impression that uh, that I take it warts and all. So I argue my corner. I say what I think about it, and I may be wrong the man who never made a mistake never made anything but I think you at least have got to try and speak for what you think is the truth it was a great Englishman wasn't it Ben Johnson who said stand for truth it's enough
1: you were awarded to Roman Catholic orders of chivalry and to many of us this sounds uh, somewhat esoteric and really quite intriguing (laughs) can you tell us about those what they are and what they mean to you
0: well, they're exactly the same things that you can get in secular society in England. If you get an OBE, an MBE, or CBE, or whatever it may be, um, these are given by the Holy See. Uh, in in my case, uh, by Pope Benedict, and it was for my human rights work. Uh, in the other case, it was given to me by uh, the Order of Constantine and Saint George, and that was for uh, the work which I've done in promoting freedom of religion or belief. Uh, I was very touched that they should think it was (laughs) that I was worth giving these to and the idea of medieval chivalry in this day and age perhaps doesn't appeal to everyone but it rather appeals to me. I think having a sense of history is a wonderful wonderful gift and if you want to understand the future or even the present then you've got to have some idea of what went before you and old fashioned ideas like chivalry generosity, kindness I think these are invaluable. So Um, my life doesn't revolve around (laughs) orders of chivalry but uh, I was very touched to be given these awards by them and uh, it was nice.
1: When C.S. Lewis talked about chivalry he talked about Lancelot saying he's so fierce to his enemies but he's kind of meek and so pleasant when when he's in pleasant company I think you're kind of embodying that really you know when when you're dealing with the communist party you're uh, quite fierce but
0: when, the, when, as a 10-year-old, the librarian in the public lending library gave me a book and said, I think you should read this, David, it was C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, and I went on to read everything I can lay my hands on by C.S. Lewis, including some of his wonderful work on looking at the world as it is today. And, uh, I mean, For instance, um, The Abolition of Man is a brilliant little book where he says we've created men without chests. In other words, if you want to have chivalry, then you also, as, as we've answered a lot, you've got to be willing to have a spear in your hand as well and you've got to defend the things that you believe in. Of course, you've got to take Lewis alongside his great friend, uh, J.R.R. R. Tolkien, and the Lord of the Rings and the story that that tells about small people taking on what seem like in seemingly impossible odds. We can get a lot from that. And both of them, Lewis and Tolkien, were inspired by another... Literary hero of mine, G.K. Chesterton, uh, who in 1923 wrote a book called *Eugenics and Other Evils*, and he looked at what he believed was looming as the great challenge that was facing Europe. And of course, he, everything he said there was sadly to prove to be true. So, I think another generation of people like Chesterton, uh, Tolkien, and Lewis uh, would be something uh, worth having.
1: Well, David Alton, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. <laughs> Pleasure and privilege, thank you.